0: Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. While you're listening, go to archpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 179.
0: On today's show, we talk about a new stone circle, Neolithic parasites, and ancient pits surrounding Stonehenge.
1: Let's dig a little deeper and be sure to do some radiocarbon dating. (laughs) Always. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going?
0: Pretty good. Where are we at? We are in Washington still. We've moved over to your hometown. Monroe, Washington.
1: Monroe. <laughs> so many first tier. Some I won't talk about. And <laughs> others, like we went through an intersection last night where I had my first car accident.
2: Uh huh.
1: And it's a stoplight now. Uh-huh. It was a stop sign before and a brand new stop sign that didn't used to be there at this intersection. Right. And I wasn't paying attention. I was two months into my driver's license. Yes. Plowed into an old lady in the back of her car. Ooh. Luckily, she was fine. Yeah. But, you know, it was like slow speed, 20 miles an hour. <laughs> but. Yeah. And, and then went to the races last night, Evergreen Motor Speedway, their 4th of July. Spectacular. And, uh, I felt
0: very redneck. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was kind of fun, though. There were yeah. some, some cool things. My, my cousin is actually a Daredevil person, stuntman. He's been mm-hmm. on TV, a couple of History Channel shows. He goes by Mr. Dizzy. Yep. So mm-hmm. look him up.
0: Yeah, he's cool. He does some cool stuff. (laughs) He He
1: took like a short schoolie bus and jumped it. He was supposed to jump it into like some cars.
0: I think he's supposed to go over them. Like all the... Well, he wanted
1: to go all the way over. No, he wasn't supposed to go all the way over. Oh, really? The bus isn't made for that.
2: Oh. So
1: there's like a line of cars, four cars four pairs of cars Yeah, and they were like which one do you think he's going to hit you know the first one the second one the third one the fourth one how far is he going to go the cars are for cushion yeah they're all stripped down they have no windows or anything they're for cushioning his his fall but instead he kind of hit the last cars with the rear wheels and the nose went straight into the racetrack yeah and it just like you know he posted already on Facebook and he's like I'm feeling this one today my <laughs> back is sore cuz he I mean he's supposed to hit the cars right right so, there so, are some jumps he's done where he's got the longest jump you know with yeah. a stuff like that. Absolutely crazy.
0: What I was shocked by was that, number one, fireworks are completely legal here. Yes. And number two, professional-grade fireworks are completely accessible here at the nearby many reservations. (laughs) Yeah. So it was just like a symphony of fireworks going off until one in the morning. Yeah. And I've never lived somewhere where that was a thing. I've either lived in cities where there's always laws against it or in deserts where... You just don't do that because desert. I feel like in
1: all the places we've been, that's a pretty rare sight to be able to see fireworks on the horizon. I I
0: was like standing on the street outside in front of the RV last night and turning in a 360 circle and seeing fireworks just going off in all different directions. And it was just shocking to me. So I've never experienced that before. Like I
1: said, it's rare, but it's not quite as rare as a 4,800-year-old stone circle uncovered in England. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so let's get into it So yeah. this is actually at a, a well-known site That's already there mm-hmm. It's on the English countryside We'll get to it a little bit But there's stone circles Everywhere in England yeah. People loved their stone circles
0: Yeah They right? were very important Back in the day Yeah For whatever reason Which is still Kind of a mystery Yeah Ish. we well, don't know indeed, exactly what they were doing there
1: right and some stone circles may have been ritualistic obviously and yeah. some stone circles may have been foundations for things with roofs that have since collapsed yeah. you know stuff like that so mm-hmm. uh, like buildings and things
0: but you would think there would be more artifacts and more more left behind from a structure if if there was yeah. a structure there and there there isn't there's not a yeah. lot of artifacts there's not a lot of indication of what they were using them for which does give more credence to the whole, like, it's a spiritual or ritual sure. idea. So, like, yeah. you
1: still have ritual buildings and stuff. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. So, yep. Anyway, it's tough to figure out what these things are for, like you said, because there's no, there's, there's few, few associated things. But mm-hmm. again, I think also one of the reasons for that might be that there was a relatively quickly growing population density in this. Island, England's an island, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's big. I mean, you can, it takes a day to drive from one end to the other, I'll give you that. But it's, it's still relatively small from mm-hmm. a population standpoint. And it doesn't take that much for people to just start filling up spaces. And I think, you know, given enough time, anything would just be picked over. Why wouldn't people repurpose stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, sure. so yeah. that, that's another reason why things might not be left behind. Yeah. But anyway. We're in Cornwall, and mm-hmm. a new stone circle was discovered at a well-known prehistoric henge. So okay. they were they were already there. Yeah. And a henge, just to put a definition on it, is a circular or ring-shaped bank and ditch with the ditch inside the bank. Right. Yeah.
0: So there's a, a bank that is usually man-made, right? Some kind of... Well... Or it could be a natural... The, the bank
1: is often the dirt from the ditch,
0: Oh yeah, so like, the, like
1: they dig out a ditch and they yeah. put a bank around it. Okay, that's a henge. Yeah. Now, using that definition, Stonehenge is not actually a henge, right? Because the ditch is outside the bank. Right. Yeah. So, following strict archaeological definitions, yeah, yeah. which but nobody does.
0: Stonehenge was used by so many people throughout so many years. It's kind of hard to say when like what was happening Yeah, there there's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of stuff
1: going on there. Just to put us in space here, Cornwall is in the far south of England. I looked it up on a map, and it is like way down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. way down there. Yep. And Historic England was the organization doing... It's like a, a state-run organization that has volunteers and such.
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: were doing conservation efforts, actually, around this this well-known henge, this Castley Henge it's called. And they were just clearing brush and, and doing what they do. And there was... Some subsurface surveys and things like mm-hmm. that that they were just going to do as a as a consequence of doing mm-hmm. this and making all this clearing, and they found pits around the uh, horseshoe formation. It's okay. not exactly round; it's more of a horseshoe shaped, right? Kind of a teardrop actually, and they found these pits.
0: Yeah. The subsurface techniques that they were using was, of course, an old favorite, <laughs> ground-penetrating <laughs> radar, which obviously makes sense. It's it's very useful for these kind of circumstances. And then they also used some other techniques to discover the unseen circle that contained seven points where the stones would have
1: been. Yeah, stones aren't there anymore. Not
0: there anymore. Yeah. yeah.
1: Ground-penetrating radar has a really good ability to see differences in... I guess differences in how the soil looks beneath the ground. So mm-hmm. if you had a pit that's now filled in, you can tell that with ground penetrating radar because there's different yeah. densities and things going on there. Yeah, and probably, I mean, if there was a stone there, it probably would have been highly compacted. Yeah, you know, because of the weight of the stone. Yeah, so.
0: yeah, definitely. And we've seen that in other things that we've talked about too, like with burial sites and, mm-hmm. and cemeteries. You can use GPR to find the soil differences where there might be burials. So that's, yeah. it's kind of like a similar thing. The soil is just very different when something has been, when something has impacted it.
1: Something I just realized, looking at the photograph, by the way, in the Smithsonian Magazine article,
0: Uh-huh.
1: there are people standing on the circle, and maybe this was said somewhere, but there's seven of them. And I think they're standing where the stones oh, standing probably where were.
0: The, oh, they probably are. Yeah, yeah,
2: totally.
1: So there's definitely some pits out out of alignment with this, and maybe they just they were too indistinct, they couldn't see them, but they say additional pits, if found, could complete the oval. Yeah. Yeah, so oh, this is in the I, center of the hench.
0: You guys should definitely go look at this picture, because <laughs> I did not get that the first time I looked at it either, but now now having read the article and going back and looking at it, I totally yeah. see that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah.
1: they said that some of the ground conditions prevented examination of the northern area for whatever reason. Yep. Uh, which makes me take back what I said about the possibly standing where the stones are, because it doesn't look like there's anything there. Maybe it was too soggy or something. And Well, like, yeah. it
0: could be that the GPR just didn't work.
1: That's what I'm saying. It, but... Yeah, yeah. Too wet or something like yeah.
2: that.
0: So the researchers believe the stones were removed and taken away in some cases. And then in other cases, they might have been pushed face down in their own pits, actually. Yeah. So they're they're still in there, I would assume.
1: Uh, not necessarily, but they could see where the stone was pushed over was and the put, ground was yeah. altered. Yeah, 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 and yeah. And then maybe the stone was taken away. They don't say how far subsurface these things are.
0: Mm-mm. You know, No, they didn't mention that. Yeah. There's mm-hmm.
1: nothing visible on the surface. so yeah. It's hard to say what's going on there. The Henge itself measures 225 feet long by 205 feet wide and dates to around the Neolithic, which is about 2700 BCE in this area.
0: Mm -hmm. And for context, we just did an episode on Stonehenge, a timelines episode where we had Stonehenge as our anchor event, and it was 2200 BCE. So Mm -hmm. Stonehenge was completed around 500 years after this. So this one is
1: a little bit older. Right, right. So... People at this time, just to place you in the Neolithic, were farming grains. So mm-hmm. they were coming from their hunter-gatherer roots, and they were actually, you know, farming using agriculture and mm-hmm. and figuring out other aspects of their culture. There's a lot of yeah, a lot of things in this time frame, you know. 4,000 almost 5,000 years ago where people were you know figuring out how to be uh how to be how to be british
0: (laughs) (laughs) well they're they're figuring out how what kind of things are important to their society as humans you know we're starting to see more art and more burial goods and all those things that start defining modern human culture we're starting Mm -hmm. to see more of that in the archaeological record
1: Yep, Flint as a stone is a, a massive resource in in England and the UK. Mm-hmm. They were using this pretty extensively at this time for weapons, tools, and they built lots of different monuments, uh, particularly these henges, these stone circles, and, mm-hmm. and other circles, and wooden henges and cysts and all kinds of stuff. Yep, yep lots totally. of rocks there. Yeah, there's a lot of really large stones strewn about the English countryside. Yeah, because they're they're what's called glacial erratics. Right, right, because they were they were pushed there by glaciers advancing from the north and then left there as the glaciers melted and retreated mm-hmm. retreated back. So there's lots of that stuff all over the place. And people used they them. They used
0: their resources, right? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense.
1: And they also did stuff like establishing burial rituals, mm-hmm. which, which weren't... Not like they did it at this time, but in this like couple thousand year time frame, yeah. you started to see more ritualistic burials rather than just, I, I, guess, I guess, less ritualistic burials where yeah. they're just kind of put in a hole.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yep. So... So henges with stones are obviously more rare than henges themselves. Because like you said earlier, a henge is basically just like a ditch with a bank, right? So that could just be a land feature. So it could have wooden posts or there are these larger ones like Stonehenge and then the way this one probably was. With stones. I'm pretty sure
1: we dug lots of hedges when I was a kid. (laughs) You know, we were always doing something. Yeah. I remember building a fort out in the woods one time and we didn't have a lot of wood to use. We had a lot of scrap wood and and tree limbs and stuff like that. We built forts every summer. Mm -hmm. And this one, which was my greatest engineering achievement as like a nine year old, it was we actually dug down into the ground because we didn't we wanted it to be something you could stand up in but we didn't have enough wood for that so we dug down a few feet into the ground in this spot we cleared in the forest and took all that dirt and piled it around the edges so that raised up the wall oh right my God, there oh
0: you totally did make, an, make we, a henge we made a henge
1: it was more square because yeah. you know yeah. we live in a square house that's all we do and then we, we built little walls out of the embankment we built mm-hmm. a door obviously and then we put a roof on it oh my gosh it was the best it was the best fort ever yeah so
0: so I mean humans have have been building a version of that basically forever then it sounds yeah. like so yeah yep. and it makes sense too in this case in england what they were doing was using the materials that they had accessible to them right yeah they had dirt they had wood they had stones so you do the things you can do with those and when people start comparing what is happening there with what was going on in say Egypt Mm -hmm. well Egypt didn't so much have the trees and the stones to work with the way they did in England so instead they were making their own bricks to Mm -hmm. build the things that they built there it just it just makes sense when you look at the resources available to people and the way that they would have created the technology that they did like it went this direction in England and went a different direction in Egypt they were both societies were starting to build these larger structures, larger monuments, larger things that were important for more than just living purposes. That's right. interesting.
1: Right. This henge was, again, there's a lot of well-known henges around it. One that we haven't talked about called the Stripple Stones mm. is also in Cornwall. Mm-hmm. And then Stonehenge, obviously everybody knows about Stonehenge, is up in Wiltshire, which is, I mean, it's a little ways away, but it's not that far not away. Not
2: too far. Yeah. In the
1: context of like, you know, being able to drive there. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Hopefully they find out more about this and, you know, they are finding stuff like this all over the place in England. Mm -hmm. And
0: it makes you wonder with the number of them sort of spread out around England and they are all in this like Neolithic time period, which I know is like several thousand years long, Mm -hmm. but it makes you wonder if... One of them is like the big powerful one and then for whatever reason attention shifts away from it to another one and maybe this one falls into disrepair or the stones are moved from this one to that one like you said. So it makes you wonder if like this one that they just found if maybe the stones were repurposed into another one which I don't know how we would ever know that it would be almost impossible to know if people are moving stones around like that but it's just interesting that Like, maybe that's why some of them are gone and some of them are still standing is because of people moving their their preference or attention around from one to another around the country as time went on.
2: Right,
1: right.
0: Stonehenge was the last man standing for some reason, (laughs) although there's other ones with stone still standing, but that's the biggest and most obvious one.
1: All right. Well, in the next article, we're moving to Stonehenge. In fact, for the next two articles, (laughs) we're moving to Stonehenge. Yep. So let's do that on the other side of the break and talk about some more crap they found over there. Oh, God. Back in a minute. Hey, everyone. Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now Zencaster has high quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to zencastercom slash pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.
0: keep this conversation going by joining our members-only Slack team. There's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more. Also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad-free shows. You get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 US per year if you get the annual subscription. Support Archaeological Education and Outreach by supporting the APN. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
1: Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 179. And as mentioned, we're going to talk about some crap found near Stonehenge.
0: <laughs> some actual physical crap.
1: <laughs> yes. So we're not just being funny here, What we are. Always. Uh, but obviously, people lived and did things at different sites, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, they leave behind not only artifacts, but remnants of themselves. Yeah.
0: I mean, trash includes feces yeah. it just does it's a thing that is discarded from your body yeah. and it is kind of gross to talk about or think about because who wants to talk about poop but mm. <laughs> but it, it can have a lot of information in it when you find it preserved correctly and when you have the right ways of getting that information out of it right. so as an archaeologist and as or as somebody who's not an archaeologist you should know that don't turn your nose up at, well, I mean, you know, pinch your nose if you want to, but don't <laughs> turn your nose up at it because it can have a right. lot of information in it.
1: Right. All right. So, what are we talking about? Well, some of the builders of Stonehenge, and I say some because Stonehenge was built over a really long period of time, yeah. but one of the main construction phases. During that time frame, the people that they feel feel like were building that actually lived in a place called Durrington Walls, which is just under two miles away from Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. So that's where they think people are living during one of the main construction phases. And I think that's just evidenced by the fact that they don't see habitation around Stonehenge necessarily, right. but this is a really big Neolithic Neolithic site of Durrington Walls, so that's that's yeah. where they feel it's like It's
0: contemporaneous yeah. to one of the f- building phases. So it just yeah. makes sense that like they if, were living there. And like if those
1: people weren't building it, they certainly knew about it. Yeah,
0: like there would be no reason to be that close to it if you weren't involved yeah. in it somehow. So yeah, like do
1: you see all those big stones over there? <laughs> what the hell's going on on the horizon? Yeah. So. Anyway, this is interesting because this article is actually from Ars Technica, but it was originally written in the journal article was written in the Journal of Parasitology. Yeah, I mean, publish where you can. But archaeologists who, again, wrote this article, uh, basing this on excavations we'll talk about later, discovered fossilized fecal matter that contains the eggs of parasitic worms. Right. Okay, so we'll talk about that a lot here mm-hmm. in a minute. But we are gonna talk about two things throughout this, and they do talk about that. There's copper lights, yes, which are actually fossilized feces. Right. And then they have actual prehistoric feces, which let's just think about that for a second. Not fossilized.
0: Not fossilized.
1: So still like feces. Yeah. Right. But even the copper lights, there are unfossilized elements within there mm-hmm. right they don't It's necessarily... not like an actual stone Well some it's, of it is
0: Some parts of it are but not parts the whole thing yeah. yeah
1: yeah and in fact most of it probably is but if you yeah. start breaking it open there's pieces that are unfossilized
0: If you go look at the pictures in the article it just looks like crumbly bits of rock we're trained archaeologists and I feel like you need to have a specialized training to figure out how to yeah. tell the difference between what is a copper light and what is just like a crumbly piece of right. rock so it's it may well, be hard to do
1: this is why when you are doing excavation or a survey or anything you want to know some information about the area that you're working in and what yeah. you expect to find yeah right now you always have to be prepared to expect the unexpected but mm-hmm. if you're in a massive habitation area
2: You need to know know what these things look like. And you've
1: identified some buildings. You know a little more about the people that live there. And you're like, well, you know, we can expect to find feces over here. Mm -hmm. You're probably not going to find it in the house unless they had a pit dug there or something like that. I mean, people don't like living around feces. That's just a thing.
0: Right, right. Well, they had these areas called midden, which I'm sure we've talked about on the show before, but it's just like a trash deposit. And Mm -hmm. in that trash deposit, you get all the organic materials that are discarded by Mm -hmm. humans. And that can include human feces, sure. it can also include feces from other animals, including dogs.
1: Which is interesting to me, because it means they were probably cleaning up dog dog poop all over yeah. the place.
0: Well, who wants to live with dog poop? Yeah. You don't want to live with human poop? You don't want to live with dog poop? Yeah. Like, any animal poop, no matter we've what. Been,
1: we've been cleaning up after dogs for <laughs> like 15,000 years. <laughs> Why do
0: you think I don't have a dog, and I don't want
1: one? At some point, they'll evolve and just clean themselves up. Mm, I but, don't know about that, you
0: know. like cats, mm-hmm. although cats yeah. just contain their...
1: Yeah, but they're pretty good at it. Yeah, they are. They are. weird thing is, dogs are so smart, but you still can't litter box train them. No. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So, I think their legs are too powerful, though. They'd kick away the litter and just, like, have this spray of of, of litter going out into the whatever room. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, both dogs and human feces were found in coprolites, which mm-hmm. indicates that they brought dogs with them to the site for winter feasts, they call mm-hmm. it, um, because likely and, and likely shared food with them. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's the other thing here is this, I don't know, I mean, it sounds like the British have been, you know, a little bit sissies about summertime for a long time because it sounds like this was only occupied during the winter months, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, really? Like, where'd they go for summer? <laughs> They're already kind of in the south of England. Like, where else do they? Where are they going to go? Why I don't wouldn't they've been there for the summertime?
0: <laughs> well, maybe it was a winter solstice kind of a thing. Well, like maybe a, a timing of the sun and but the they were moon still, like, or building, whatever.
1: You know, building Stonehenge yeah, and doing yeah. stuff. But yeah, you know. anyway, it's clear that they brought the dogs with them and mm-hmm. and shared food with them because the dogs were eating kind of the same things. Yep. Yeah. So. Really cool here. Intestinal parasites have never been discovered from a Neolithic British site until now. Right. Which is somewhat shocking to me.
0: It is. And it makes me wonder if people haven't looked for them before. Like yeah. maybe there's plenty of preserved coprolites. Wow. Yeah, and they're hard to
1: find, right? What do they
0: call it? Paleo feces? Paleo feces, Paleo yeah. paleo poop. Maybe Paleo-poops. there's lots of those around and they just yeah. haven't been tested. I don't know. That was a little unclear. But it is the first time somebody has gone digging for this information. So that yeah. that is very cool.
1: Yeah, it's almost noon as we're recording this, and I haven't eaten yet today, so I'm (laughs) going to say this is making me hungry. Not feces in particular, but these next
2: comments, (laughs) because just
1: some of the things that you can learn about prehistoric feces, a couple of things, well, at least one thing that I pulled out of the article that they were talking about is Iron Age Meyers in Austria. They loved beer and blue cheese, according to a 2021 (laughs) paper. I'm like, yeah, not a lot's changed. Well, yeah, Yeah. and
0: it makes sense that you can use copper lights to learn about the diet, right? And in that case, it was beer and blue cheese. I I don't see a problem with beer and blue cheese. Sounds like a great combination. (laughs) I know, and if
1: you've ever, I don't know, not to be too crude about it, but if you've ever just kind of taken a glance back in the toilet, you can tell that there are things that don't get processed into the body very well. Right. Yep. And that's, that's been the same throughout time, right? Yep. There's sometimes you just eat stuff like, especially like seeds and nuts, if they're not chewed up very well, yeah. they can just pass right through you yep. and you can find that stuff and you can take a look at those things and actually you know, determine, I mean, this went into somebody's body in some way, shape, or form and came out the other end. Yep. I would say it was part of the food. And I'm saying that because, you know, a lot of people did processing of grains in like stone bowls and they they did cooking in stone and stuff like that. So you might actually end up with bits of the cooking and processing vessels in there as well. Yeah, you
0: totally do. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I thought this was very interesting. So until this article came out, it was very hard to basically type coprolites. They basically had to go on the morphology of the coprolite, right? And you could tell a difference between most mammals, but it was really, really hard to tell the difference between human and canine. Yeah, They just, for some reason, those two are very hard to tell apart. And the preservation of coprolites and paleofeces make it even harder because it kind of like, yeah. it the shape might be gone, basically.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So what they used for this article is a a recently developed tool called copro id and that's basically a software that was created for identifying coprolites
1: yeah now these guys didn't create that they, they just say that they used it yeah
0: yeah, yeah. it's just a, it's a new tool i'm not sure who developed it but yeah. it is a new yeah. tool that these guys use for for determining whether the paleo feces and coprolites are human mm-hmm. or animal and it can get even more specific than that as far as type of mammal yeah so the software compares samples using previously sequenced modern fecal data set. So feces collected from people today. Mm-hmm. And then it also uses the, the newly sequenced data set of paleo poop specimens and sediments from archaeological digs. So they did both. So they've got this modern data set and then they also have the paleo data set from various different places around the world, I think. They definitely mentioned Mexico and several other places, so they're getting a large data set of different things that you might see in the copper lights.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then they combine the host DNA analysis, that would be those samples that we were just talking about, with the analysis of the distinct colonies of microbes living inside humans and dogs. And from that, they can say what microbes they're finding in the coprolites yeah. in the in the paleofeces, and then also like whether or not it's human or dog or right. what mammal it is. So really cool that they can drill into those distinctions between who it is and then what the microbe is too.
1: Yeah, and what this is showing us is that there are way more dogs in the archaeological record than we ever previously thought. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, we know that there's a relationship between humans and dogs. Obviously, there always has been, but Mm -hmm. this just shows that they're very intertwined with like everyday life. They're everywhere.
1: Yeah. Another thing this is showing us is that by analyzing these fecal parasites and comparing them between hunter-gatherer societies and then farming communities later on, reveals what will be obvious, but it's nice to see in the archaeological record, dramatic dietary changes and shifts in settlement patterns and culture mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff following the rise of agriculture. Yeah, so yeah. people are obviously eating different things and eating in different quantities and mm-hmm. of, of different things. So, you know, as they're being more more sedentary and eating what they're growing, basically.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about what they're actually finding, we we, we yeah. talked about these parasites, which is super gross. They're not finding like the parasites themselves in most cases. Right, they're finding the eggs of the parasites, <laughs>
2: know, which like is just like gross. oh
1: my god. <laughs> uh, and and that's what's found mostly in the the paleo feces and the and the copper
0: Yeah,
1: at Turton Wells. The excavations actually took place from 2004 to 2007, just a massive amount of data collected, which is mm-hmm. why we're getting this paper You know, 13, 14 right. years later. So much uh, study to do. 15 years later, yeah. yeah. Um, over 100 pits were dug. Some of the pits are where the coprolites were found, and five of the 19 samples examined contained parasitic eggs. So not all of them. Not so all that's of them. good. And four of those are from dogs and one from a human.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Which I don't think they knew that before they submitted the samples. All they knew is that they had 19 coprolite samples. Right. And then they submitted the data for analysis. Five of them came back as having the parasitic eggs, and then four of them were for dogs, from dogs and
1: one from humans. Yeah. A human. So the article title actually saying Stonehenge people had parasites, like a person had parasites in what they were looking at here yeah. from one of the samples. But yeah. I don't know if that's representative of the whole community. It's hard to know? say
0: because you could have gotten one one person, but you know what? Parasites like that, they spread so easily from person to it's person, true. especially when there's poor hygiene. So well, where you find one, probably. Yeah, and it
1: can be assumed that, I mean, if people are eating the same things and mm-hmm. coming from the same places, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to have similar similar things going on with them. Yeah, totally. One of the dog samples contained eggs of uh, fish tapeworm, indicating uh-huh. that the dog would have consumed raw freshwater fish at some point. Yeah. So they can kind of nail down where they came from.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting because the other thing I read was that they had zero other evidence of fish at the Durrington Wells site. Mm -hmm. So the dog ate fresh fish at some point, but not at that site. It was brought there from somewhere... Where they were eating fish, yeah. presumably closer to the coast. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Another point of evidence that says they weren't there during the summertime or that people were coming yeah. in and out. Mm-hmm. Right. So
0: I wonder how long like the evidence of eating raw fish would stay in coprolite sample.
1: Well, it's they didn't find evidence of eating the raw fish. They found evidence of the eggs, which stay in your body for oh, a they say
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. Of course, the dog yeah. probably would have yeah. passed
1: through the fish a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Because so. it's
0: eggs. Because it's a parasite. But <laughs> instead, it's just got this
1: tapeworm living inside of it, yes. and the tapeworm yes. is actually releasing eggs periodically. Yes,
0: totally. super
1: gross, but that's what's happening. Yeah, that was probably a yeah.
0: dog that had some intestinal issues going on. Yeah,
1: he was scooting all over not, that site. So, not
0: in a good place.
1: And the human coprolate and three of the canine samples had the lemon-shaped eggs of the capillariid worms. Mm-hmm. And... What's unusual about these is that with human infections, the eggs tend to end up in the liver and are never actually excreted.
0: Which means we would never see evidence of them. We would never see evidence of them.
1: So... (laughs) Again, super gross. Yeah. This means that they were probably coming from the internal organs, like the liver and lungs, of the animals they were eating, mm-hmm. indicating that the humans and the dogs were eating the internal organs of these animals. Right. Yeah. Something we don't necessarily do now in, in most no. modern societies. And
0: doesn't it mean they had to have been eating them raw, too? Or would it come Not through necessarily.
1: I Not necessarily. I think the eggs might...
0: Might make they it. They might not. The cooking. They might
1: make it through the cooking if it was like medium rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess so. If it didn't but get. They, yeah. They
1: could have been eating it raw. People eat they liver raw right been, now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So.
0: Well, and I think it's really interesting too that dog and human coprolites are showing the same type of parasite, meaning yeah. that they're eating the same things. Probably. Yeah. That's how they would share the same the same parasite. So I guess doggy bags are still a thing. <laughs> Even back in Neolithic times. Man, I guess so. Yep.
1: All right. Well, we are going to continue on this theme of Stonehenge with the next article, and... You know, we mentioned this is Durrington Wells, right? Mm -hmm. And they dug, they found all these, they dug these pits and they found these things. Well, people were digging pits over at Stonehenge as well, but for the last like 8,000 years Mm -hmm. and for lots of different reasons. And that's what they started finding over there. So we're going all the way over actually to Stonehenge. I say all the way, but it's less than two miles. It should be very close. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty quick. So we'll be there in just a minute. Back in a minute. (laughs)
3: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
0: Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching.
3: <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof.
0: Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com.
1: Welcome back to the third and final segment of The Archaeology Show, episode 179. Stones in circles and the ancients (laughs) that love them. So,
0: Well, the ancients in England and yes. the UK apparently. Yes. In particular really That's loved. fine. That's fine. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this next article entitled Hundreds of Ancient Pits Found at Stonehenge and Let's talk about that. So they were doing a geophysical survey. Again, I, I believe they didn't use GPR. It was very glossed over in the article. Like the they used like an electromagnetic resonance kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it just really what that is doing is it, it's taking the subsurface and seeing how a field passed over it, how it orients and reacts to that basically. Okay. And then they can see stuff under the ground. I did that briefly in, in grad school. Oh, okay. It was a pretty interesting thing. It only yeah. works in certain types of conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why there's lots of subsurface conditions. Uh, subsurface geophysical survey methods is because Sometimes the soil and the ground will dictate what you can use, and Mm -hmm. sometimes what you're actually trying to find dictates what you can use because they all look at things a little bit differently. Right, right. So, but anyway, a large geophysical survey was done and they discovered hundreds of large pits in the land around Stonehenge, many of which predate Stonehenge by thousands of years, which is so crazy. I don't know, is it? People have been living on that island since the end of the Ice Age.
0: Well, yeah, but to be like clustered in one area, what what I wonder is, is it clustered around Stonehenge or? Do you would you no. find these pits if you looked everywhere? I think you'd
1: find them if you looked everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, judging from what this is. Because mm-hmm. they, they found them pretty much all over the area they were looking in. Right. And that just indicates that, well, they didn't find them outside that because they didn't look outside that. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering.
1: Yeah. So, some of these pits contained actual post holes, indicating okay. there could have been some other thing built around it. Yep. Either way, nothing on this scale has been discovered. But that's because it, it hasn't it, been looked that's for. That's what it. I want to
0: know. <laughs> Not at Stonehenge, obviously, but at other places where we know that there was pre-modern activity going on mm-hmm. do we see a landscape of holes like this is what I wondered well
1: and here's the other thing to consider too Stonehenge is unique yeah. in the world yeah. right I mean there were other henges as we mentioned other stone henges, as mm-hmm. we mentioned but it's so unique and so powerful and so big and just monumental it would have been something like nothing had nobody had ever seen before
2: mm-hmm.
1: why did they build it there Yeah. Did they build it there because the stones were there? We've seen evidence of dragging of those stones across the landscape, especially the blue stones came from Wales. Yeah. But. Like why here? yeah, why here did they choose to build this? And maybe it's some of the same reasons of the the cultural knowledge going back thousands of years for the people that lived there saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, you know, this place is really special to us for whatever reason." Mm-hmm. Maybe it was special to them because you know some of these pits they they say that the size and shape indicate that they could have been used as hunting traps mm-hmm. for large animals mm-hmm. or you know maybe even as a, a hunting blind where you'd get in the pit and and hunt that way. so
2: mm-hmm.
1: in a society where. Food is like life, yeah. You end up equating food with ritualism,
0: important areas. Important yeah. areas. So, yeah. if
1: people were subsisting off of this area because animals liked coming here thousands of years, you know, in a row, mm-hmm. and people were able to sustain their lives off of this, well, they would learn to revere that landscape, yeah. And, yeah, that's and totally maybe, true. maybe this is one of the reasons why the builders of Stonehenge decided to put it here, yeah, you know, because they already thought this landscape was special in some way,
0: yeah, definitely. So the ages of the pits range from 8200 BCE to 1300 BCE. That's a very wide range.
2: It's a long occupation
0: time. zone. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 1200 years after Stonehenge was constructed. That last one was. So, yeah, yeah they're doing pits before, pits after, pits during, pits all over the place.
1: <laughs> and you can tell if you've seen pictures of Stonehenge recently, I mean, 1200 years after Stonehenge was constructed, it just wasn't a good place to hunt anymore probably. There was all the festivals <laughs> and people were just like, "Listen, you're scaring away the animals."
2: I'm not going to go. Oh it took them gosh. 1,200
1: years to build that to, up.
0: Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, then they stopped. Definitely. Yep. That's what happened. That's exactly sure. what happened. Yep.
1: So it's fun. The geophysical survey, this is how they decided, found out what was inside of those. And again, you got to look at sampling in archaeology. It's usually economically and temporally infeasible to go and dig everything up. Right? No,
0: and you wouldn't want to because right. that's destroying the resource. So right. you, sampling is really the best bet to not destroy it and also learn about it.
1: So, for whatever reasons, they decided to do targeted coring on some of these. I don't know if it was a random sampling Mm -hmm. or if it was something they saw in the scans that Mm -hmm. said, we need to dig here, but they did targeted coring on some of them. And again, what they found revealed the earliest evidence for human activity yet in the Stonehenge landscape, you know, because they found all kinds of different things in this coring.
0: So, what were the pits for?
1: Yeah. Well, like we said... They think that given their size, these aren't small pits. Yeah. Given their size, they could have been used as hunting traps for large animals. And these mm-hmm. large animals are not very dexterous. So if you if you guide them through people just like chasing them mm-hmm. into these pits, they might be able to get in long enough for you to surround it and throw spears at yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. For so, you to
0: take down one or two for yeah. you know, dinner.
1: <laughs> exactly. And some of the some of the bigger animals that would have been around at that time were red deer, which if you listen to the Archaeo Animals podcast. I didn't actually know this, but the red deer is actually the elk over here.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. they
1: call it the red deer over in the UK. And here, that would be an elk. Okay. So, a large, large animal. We saw an elk just the other day. But we it was did. A, a doe elk, but it was still massive. Mm-hmm. And then boars, like wild boars, those were big. And aurochs. Mm-hmm. Aurochs were massive wild cattle that went extinct about 400 years ago. Wow. I didn't know aurochs only went extinct about 400 years ago. Yeah, that's
2: not
0: that long. No, I, I want to no hear idea. like.
1: Like British royalty descriptions of, like, you know, they hunted that kind of, of stuff. Of like,
0: nomming down on an auroch bone. Like bone. Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, that's got to be where that kind of image comes from, right? right. Gets a mead and an auroch femur.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Anyway, this is not an unusual thing. People have used traps like this all over the world to hunt animals. And in fact, we talked about one.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about that with the massive desert kites that were basically stone corrals in Saudi Arabia. We talked about it in a previous episode because they've been doing research on those as well and trying to figure out what people were doing there. It's always about figuring out what the people were doing with (laughs) these crazy shapes and structures that they would make on their landscapes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah,
0: but we'll link to that episode in the show notes so that you can go listen and learn about. Desert kites, if you would like.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hunters in North America here, you can actually see this like driving through I-80 on Reno, Uh, outside of Reno. You can see stone fences up the side. They didn't use them for property marking. They used them for driving game, Mm -hmm. you know, and they'd spend years really putting together these stone fences, Mm -hmm. just making them longer and taller and longer and Mm -hmm. taller. And, you know, there's there's predictable migration routes, which the prehistoric peoples knew these very well, very attached to the landscape, more so than we do today, obviously.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And they would just drive them, you know, literally drive them by running into these stone fences. And they would see this obstacle and, and go the direction they mm-hmm. wanted you to go. So
0: It's so funny you talk about the migration paths and how well they knew them. And it seems crazy to me to think about that, that they would have to put so much time and effort into studying it. Yeah. But then I think about my dad's current battle with the deer
2: uh, <laughs> coming yeah. into
0: his yard. Yeah. And what's happening is... It's it's that exact migration path, but it happens to be through my parents' side yard into their backyard and then across their backyard and into this open space behind it. Yeah. It's this path that the deer take every single night to get from point A to point B. It was very easy for my parents to learn it because they can see their little like mm-hmm. where they've chewed their way through my poor mom's tomato plants and <laughs> <laughs> various other flowers that she was trying to plant. Mm-hmm. So like within a couple days they figured out what their migration path is through their backyard and now they're trying to battle it using sprinklers and fences and various things. And yeah. I think they're losing they're losing that battle entirely. But <laughs> yeah, so I think learning migration paths of animals while seemingly crazy to us from a modern standpoint. It's actually not that crazy at all. Yeah,
1: exactly. So going back to Stonehenge, they discovered a total of 415 pits within a single square mile, Mm -hmm. which is a lot. Mm -hmm. Right. And 62 of those sites were sampled. A total of nine were excavated. Now, sampled using the coring methods. Right. Yeah, you know, just to see what was in there. Of mm-hmm. those, they said, you know, they found enough that they would look at nine of those. Now, they didn't really talk about what they found, but they must have found remains of organic material and mm-hmm. things like that because they said radiocarbon dating was actually used to determine the age.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, probably bits of wood if they were post holes, yep. other things, and they could use radiocarbon dating to determine those ages. I,
0: I would love to know more about that, though, because the danger with radiocarbon dating is that you always have the potential of natural burning. Situations yeah. that can contaminate. So, how do you tell the difference? I would hope that if they're dating something specifically and saying this is definitely dated to this yeah. by humans, it's an artifact that is clearly human made or human touched or something right, like that right. that they're dating from. But
1: And I would assume based on the fact that they're in these pits and dug into mm-hmm. these pits and you know relatively out of context with the rest of the landscape that that, it is know, human that they could determine deposit. that. Yeah. Because yeah. the other thing you have to factor in too is Not all these landscapes, especially in England, were the big, open, rolling grasslands that we see today. Mm -hmm. There were forests everywhere. Yeah. Right? So you can't even assume that like the landscape Stonehenge was on, I don't know this particularly, Mm -hmm. but- was it the farmland that it is today? I mean, it right, wasn't, right? Right, There prob- were probably forests. <laughs>
0: there probably were, although you would think that they would clear it well, for their stone circle, yeah, obviously, and the, the surrounding area, but enough area for 415 pit, pits? Yeah. A square mile of clearing? I don't know about that. Right,
1: I just don't know what the natural landscape of England looked like in the Neolithic.
0: Yeah.
2: You
1: know, before before real agriculture started to take hold, mm-hmm. you know, because once they started growing stuff, they probably started doing a lot more clearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as people came into the landscape, they'd have to cut down more trees to build more homes and mm-hmm. things like that. That's just a natural progression. But, you know, what did it look like for these people in the earliest time frame here digging those pits? Mm-hmm. Were, they, were they digging them in in big, huge forests, you know? Because mm-hmm. we've seen those. You, you see pictures of British forests, and, and they're big trees. They're widely spaced, you know. I mean, they do have denser forests, but mm-hmm. they're just really cool places. So
0: I think the thing to keep in mind is that, for us, when we look at a map of where these pits are, it looks like it's polka dotting the landscape, right? Because we're seeing the pits from a all of them standpoint. Yeah. All of them at once. Yeah. But when there's a, you know, a six thousand year time period yeah. where people were digging these pits, it's not like they would know that the other pits were there necessarily. So they're all very spread out from a time standpoint. Yeah. So it very well could have just been you know, like they say, catching animals because they needed to eat while they were doing whatever they were doing at Stonehenge. And the result is over 6,000 years of using the area that you end up with what looks like a polka dotted pit map. But it was actually just what they needed for that certain time that people were there. They just, you know, were hunting and getting what they needed. And it just adds up to a lot of pits over time. So, yeah. That makes sense to me anyway.
1: All right. Well, that's about it for this week. We are headed into canada mm-hmm. at the end of this week so our next recording either could be from a canadian royal mounted police or border patrol prison oh, if they'll geez. let us if they'll oh let us record uh, because you know americans coming in are just suspicious <laughs> um, yeah and
0: they might not leave for right <laughs> right
1: or we're back in the states or we're in canada yeah, we'll see we'll see where we so, end so. up all right thanks a lot and we'll see you next week bye Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArchPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com members. That's arcpodnet.com members. And thanks for listening.
3: You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated US-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
2: Don't you love an extra $100 in your
0: pocket?